You take a Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We look again at this text, this uh, paragraph. Unity through diversity equals maturity. We're in uh, the fourth part of this sermon, and hopefully today we'll be landing this sermon, bringing it to an end. I, I say hope because you never know with me. Last week we looked at some very uh, specific things. We asked some very specific questions of the text. We asked, first of all, what gifts did Christ give the church? And I've summarized the answer for you. Christ gave the church gifted men. We, we, we don't need to run past what Paul says in verse 11. He gave men. You see that? In the, in the hustle and bustle and the noise of the church today about the gifts, plural, the gifts, the different gifts God gives to people. We forget that the gift that He gave the church were men in four classes. Apostles and prophets were given to lay the foundation of the church. Their role, their ministry was carried out perfectly. The foundation was laid. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there is no other foundation which can be laid than the foundation I have previously laid in Corinth, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Truth. The foundation is there. As Paul writes earlier in this letter, the apostles and prophets make up the foundation in the sense that they teach the truth of Jesus Christ, Him being the cornerstone of the temple of God. So the apostles and prophets were given to lay the foundation of the church. And Christ gave evangelists, those who carried on the ministry of the apostles and prophets after their day, in their day and even into our day, I believe. They continue to take the message of the gospel to people who have never heard the message. There are over 2,000 people groups in the least. At least 2,000 who have never in their lifetimes, heard the gospel. That's not in Paul's day. That's in our day. It is amazing to me the ignorance that we possess in our own churches towards these people. You know, the, the, the militant almost attitude of the Western church that we're too busy worrying about our own lost people. We're not going to go over there until... All the people here have been saved. That's the lie of Satan. Don't buy that. The church has never been commanded by Christ to sit neutral in mission to the world because the local congregation hasn't been filled with all the people in her community. If we wait for every person in Calhoun County to believe the gospel... Before we send the message to those who have never heard, they will never hear. God has given us evangelists, men, women, who take the gospel to nations, people groups, ethnicities who have never heard the message. 
this uh, two weeks ago, I was privileged to sit with one of these people. I told you about him last week, Norbert. He's hopefully, God willing, coming back to speak with our congregation before he goes to his native land of Ivory Coast. He's here receiving mission training. His specific message is going to be the gospel. To what groups of people? Those 312 groups in West Africa who have never heard the name of Christ. They don't have a Bible in their language. They don't have a church in their community. They have nothing. So the message is the same as the apostles' message. They have laid the foundation, and we have continued this through the work of the evangelist and pastor-teachers. He has gifted the church with men. Apostles, prophets were given to lay the foundation of the church, and Christ gave evangelists and pastor-teachers to continue the work of preaching the gospel. What is my job description? What are the elders of this church, the pastors of this church, to do? What we are to do is teach and preach, primarily. Anything we do above and beyond that is the call of every Christian. Every time that a pastor comes and visits you, this is what you should be doing with one another, is visiting one another encouraging one another, equipping one another in, in edification. What we have as pastors been set apart by Christ to do in this local congregation is to train and teach and equip you to do the work of the ministry. Christ gave these men. Why did Christ give these gifts, these men, to His church? Well, simply put, Christ gave these men to the church so that the church might be equipped to do the work of the ministry. I spent a lot of time last week on that. I got a lot of response, positive, thankfully, from you. I'm sure there were some negatives, but you spared me from that. But listen, we need a model shift. Not in the church at large, though we need that, but at Grace Fellowship. We need to change our mindset. You do not hire hirelings to do the work of ministry. You don't hire pastors to do what the church at large is to do. If so, you will fail. I will fail, and the church will fail. Why will the church fail? Because what five men can do, 150 can do better. It's amazing to me that the core of the church sees this, and the fringe sees it and doesn't understand it. So I want to make it plain. If you're here today, a member of this local congregation, or thinking to become a member of this local congregation, you have a job description. It's called the work of the ministry. That's your job description. My job description, the five elders' job description, is simply to teach you and train you and equip you to do what you were called to do by God. So, I said, I pointed the finger squarely, not at you, but at us. We are failing. If we do not, if we forsake the work that we've been called to, to do any other work, then we fail. We fail as pastors. And so we need to recommit ourselves as a church. And this is a plague that is struck, not just in Grace Fellowship, but not just in Calhoun County, but all over the nation. Church members have become spectators 
consumers and not those who do the ministry. How do I know if I have this mindset? I left you with a question, right? What has God gifted you to do? And then secondly, the first thing that comes to your mind about church is the first thing that comes to your mind, what can the church do for me? Or what can I do in the church? If your first response is, what can the church do for me? You can rest assured you've probably fallen into the trap of we hire people to do our ministry. In that model, it always fails. Not sometimes, it always fails. It can fail because the church fragments, because the few who are trying to minister can't get to everybody. So you begin to get the loss of closeness and those kind of things. But it can fail also because you're failing. You sense that in your heart. There's something more that God has called me to do. And so because the ministers, the pastor teachers, are not doing what this passage calls them to do, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, then you have a great sense of loss. A great sense in your own heart of emptiness. Okay? So, we've asked these questions. What did he give? Why did he give? And we didn't get to the last of those questions. And the last one being... What is the ultimate goal? What is the ultimate goal of the gifts God has given to the church? And that's where I want to go today. Specifically, looking at the end of verse 12, the beginning of verse 13. First of all, what, what purpose? First of all, Christ gave these pastor teachers to the local church so that there would be a unity of the faith. A unity of the faith. You know, in... in, in Plain talk, this means we have been entrusted with the gospel that came to us through Christ and His apostles. The doctrine of the apostles, we might say. That's what the church has been entrusted with. So there is a unity. As a matter of fact, look back at verse 3. Paul talks about that. Are we to create unity? No. Why? Because we're simply to maintain the unity that we already have. The unity we have in the Spirit. So we're not to create unity, but we're to maintain it in verse 3. But then in verse 13, look what he says. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. It's interesting. This faith is not individual belief. That's not what's being talked about here. What's being said here is the faith, the faith, the doctrine of the apostles. That's the faith, simply put here, in this verse. And we have unity only so much as we hold to that doctrine. You look at the church today and it looks awful fragmented, doesn't it? It looks awful shattered. It looks awful contentious. It looks awful competitive with itself. Why? Because the unity of the doctrine of the apostles is not held in each local congregation. As a matter of fact, it's not held within the local congregation, is it? Anytime there is division, it is rooted in a lack of understanding and belief of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where division comes from. There are no exceptions to this. 
Unity is inevitable. It is inevitable, Paul says, when all the people are grounded in the apostles' doctrine. Look what he says at the end of verse 12. Why are the pastor teachers in existence? They are to equip, to mend together the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what are we to do? First of all, what's the purpose? To attain the unity of the faith. To understand the doctrine of Jesus Christ. To grasp hold of and be rooted in the truth. That's the first purpose of Him giving these gifts to the church. But that's not the only purpose He has in giving these gifts to the church. Christ then gave these pastor teachers to the local church so that there would be intimate knowledge of Christ. Notice I said intimate knowledge. Did you catch that? The text says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. But he's talking to saved people. And he's saying, until they understand who Christ is. But we're saved, Paul. How can we not understand who Christ is? Well, that's why I inserted the explanatory term, intimate. Because in our day, like in Paul's day, many people know who Christ is. Many people profess sound doctrine from their mouth, but they do not know Christ in a personal way. They have no intimate knowledge of who Christ is. As a matter of fact, the word here for knowledge, and many of you know this, is the biblical term for the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Adam and Eve knew one another, and they conceived Seth. So it begs the question for you, Grace Fellowship, do you have that kind of knowledge of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you, do you know about Him? I'm asking you, do you know Him? Do you meet Him? Do you actually talk to Him and hear Him talk to you? Or can you just answer a profile about Jesus? It's been said, I'm not originating this, but the, the matter of fact is this. President Barack Obama could walk in this room right now and I could say I know him the same way many of you know Christ. I know when he was born. I've heard him give speeches, so I know what he believes. I've read articles about him, so I have a lot of facts about his wife and his children. I even know what kind of dog he has, as if we need to know that. I have a lot of knowledge about Barack Obama. But the truth of the matter is, I have no clue who Barack Obama is. Never spoken to him. He's never spoken to me. If we passed one another on the street, I would recognize him. He would have no clue who I am. 
don't stand before Jesus Christ on the judgment day and give him a profile of himself like you would Obama and him say, depart from me. Not because you didn't know me, because I didn't know you. We are given to the church as a gift to bring you to the point where you build up the body of Christ until there is a sound foundation of the apostles' doctrine which leads to intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, you just might jot that down in the, I won't have you turn there. Paul speaking about this intimate knowledge makes it very clear, not from talking about some worldly example, those, those are helpful, but he does it with a biblical example. He says the people of old, the people of God in the old covenant knew God. How did they know God? They knew God because the mediator Moses went on the mountain and met with God face to face, received from God the law, the loving, gracious law of God. And he came down off the mountain, and what did the people say? Put a veil over your face, Moses. Why? Because you've been with God and you look like God, and we're afraid of you. You're too bright. Your radiance, the radiance of God, beams from you so brightly we can't stand to look at you. Put a veil over your face. And Paul says, some of you in this church have a veil over your eyes when it comes to Christ. You have a foolish veil. You do not see Him face to face. But the beauty of the Gospel is when it, in, when it comes in and roots in the sound doctrine of the apostles in your heart, the veil is lifted and for the first time you see the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now I just described a very personal, intimate, experiential relationship to a very conservative church who is now unnerved that what I'm really talking about is some ooey-gooey emotionalism or some out-of-controlled charismania. Those two things exist because they are cut away from the truth of God's Word. So when I ask the question, do you know Christ? And you answer, I know Him because I went to a meeting and I had, a, I had, a, I had an enlightening experience at the meeting. And since then, I just I know Him. I feel like I know Him. That means nothing to me. I don't care. I'm sorry, but I don't. You can tell me about the goosebumps you get on certain songs. It doesn't matter. Because how can I have this intimate, personal, relational, marital knowledge of my Lord in the Word of God? How do I see the face of Jesus? In the Bible. The book is alive. It is active. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the very marrow of the man, the very essence of who he is. So much so that when you stand at that judgment seat, having known him intimately for years, you will be naked before him. And he will expose all of who you are. And he will receive you as his own. 
The difference in Hebrews 4 and Matthew 7 is all of eternity. Matthew 7 is people who know Jesus. They have a profile pic of Jesus. They bought the Topps baseball card about Jesus. They know orthodoxy, but they don't know the man. And Hebrews 4 is those who in His Word come face to face with Him so often that it exposes who they are and they stand in His presence naked. And they don't run from Him, they're received by Him. To rest. Where does Hebrews 4 go? Not to trembling and fear, but to the rest of the true Sabbath. Don't be afraid to stand before Jesus if He knows you. Because if He knows you on that day, it is because He has known you as His own, His sheep. And He is your husband. This text takes on new meaning when we see that the pastors of the church were given to the church primarily to teach the church the Bible so that the church doesn't know facts about the Bible but comes face to face with a living Jesus. So much so that He exposes them and then receives them. That's how the church is being built up. It's being edified. So Christ gives the pastor teachers to the church so that we might have a unity of the faith, so that we might have intimate knowledge of Christ. Christ gave these pastor teachers to the local church so that there would be spiritual maturity in the church. Spiritual maturity in the church. Look in 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the apostles' doctrine, it's rooted in us so much that we intimately, personally relate to Jesus Christ in His Word. We have a knowledge of the Son of God. Then third purpose statement is that we become mature men, mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Maturity brings up the bodily analogy that Paul has been using in this text. All of us have children and we pray they mature, right? Because the opposite of maturity is not immaturity. The opposite of maturity in this text is to be dead. There's no option that you just sit in neutral all your life and then you die and go stand before Jesus and He says, well, you never grew a lick. You never became more like me, but I receive you anyway. There are no carnal Christians at the throne of Christ. There are carnal, fleshly, sinning, erring sinners who are rejected. And there are Christians who are mature. What am I saying? We run to intellectual maturity or emotional maturity when we see the word maturity. But in this text, he's talking about physical maturity. How do I know that? Because there's a context to this passage. Look in verse 16. I don't want to steal my thunder there, but look what it is. He's not talking about spiritual or emotional or mental maturity. What is he saying? The body grows in itself. What's he describing? Physical growth. You do know that your children, even if they're little babies right now, in 20 years won't be little babies. And it won't have anything to do with how you parent. It won't have anything to do with how good a person you are in front of them. 
The maturity that Paul's talking about here is bodily, physical. It's being related to physical growth. How do people grow? They intrinsically grow. What are you talking about? They intrinsically grow. They eat and they sleep and they grow. You don't tell them to grow up. They just do it, right? This is not Paul saying the pastors and teachers have to somehow make you grow more than it is that the pastor teacher feeds you the Word of God and you intrinsically grow. You grow. He doesn't make you grow. The frustration that I feel and that you feel often in our lives is that we're trying to either make ourselves grow or make somebody else grow spiritually. And what we need to do is trust God's Word. And if it is taught purely, and if it is upheld as an example of life before them, young Christians, baby Christians, in that environment will grow. They're not having to be forced. But let me flip this around, because I think it so hits home in this term. But I don't care how many gimmicks you invent, how sweet your fellowship is, nor how much many programs you have, if you don't teach the Word of God purely, you cannot grow Christians. Do you understand that? Is that clear? The focus of the text is teaching and preaching, not inventing new ways to grow Christians. The greenhouse environment that grows Christians is the pure doctrine of the Word of God. That's why it is foolishness when you hear someone say, we got to get so much out of that deep doctrine and start doing some practical things so these people will grow. No. What you will grow is moral people, good citizens, People who have the Topps baseball card of Jesus and know the basic facts about Him, but stand at that day of judgment in Matthew 7, not Hebrews 4. They stand there not knowing Christ, really, and Him never having known them. What we're creating is incubators for carnal Christians in the West. That's my point. And how are we doing it? Because we've left the teaching of God's Word behind, and we've become so pragmatic. And Paul's saying that pastors have been giving to the church so that you have a unity of the faith that grounds the fact that you, as a church, know Christ and are mature. But he doesn't stop there. He goes to the second analogy he's used, which is the measure of the fullness of Christ. It's an architectural design. What's happening in the church when the sound doctrine of the, of the faith is taught and people are more and more knowing Christ intimately as a husband knows his wife is that the church of God is built and added to. Not only built bodily maturity, but in number. It is built. It is built. And it is by God in His strategy and by His grace. So, with the purpose for the giving includes the unity of the faith, it includes the knowledge of Christ, it includes, thirdly, maturity, spiritual maturity. But it also includes 
sound doctrine. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. Not young people, but babies. The word here means baby. So that we are no longer babies, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The, the, I've made it a positive point here, but it's sound doctrine that prevents us from being babies which are thrown about by the waves and carried about by the wind of every doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Human cunning comes from a Greek word that represents the dice of the gambling table. Human cunning here is saying there are those in the church and outside the church who want to trick you. They offer you Skittles and call it broccoli, to go back to my analogy last week. They feed you candy and tell you they're giving you the new energy pill that'll make you feel better and grow better in Christ. And it comes in all manner of forms in our day. But here, don't, he's saying in sound doctrine, people aren't babies anymore. They're mature men, so therefore they're not tossed about by these tricks. They're not caught up in these schemes. Craftiness is just a repeating, really, of that same idea. The fact is that error is made to look like it's truth. So these people are tricking you and they're taking an error and making it look true so that you'll buy it, you'll believe it. But if, under the sound teaching of the unity of the faith, growing in the knowledge of who Christ is, becoming a mature Christian, you're no longer a baby, but you've come into the fullness of who Christ is, when these things float about, you just ignore them. You rebuke them. You're not tricked by them. But there's something even greater going on here. And that is there are deceitful schemes. This is one of two times that he uses this word deceitful schemes. And it's only other use is in 11. 6, chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So what I see Paul doing in chapter 4 is he's saying there are men who array themselves in robes that look like light, but they're liars. And they've gotten you to believe a trick and a, and a deceitful error. And you think it's true. And there are also coming against the church the schemes of, dev, of the devil. We have two enemies, two great enemies. Neither of them are lost people. Lost people are not our enemy. We have apostates in the church, and we have the devil outside the church. We have the work of lying, carpetbagging. What other pejorative term can I give you today to help you understand how I feel about teachers who float about like clouds to give rain, but they have no rain, and they're teaching falsehood as truth. They are our enemies. They are not our friends. They are not our brothers. And we should point them out as the filthy rags that they are. Not because we're better, but because they are leading in their wake thousands upon thousands who think they know who Jesus is. And they don't. They know an idol. 
of some sort. They're propped up by the lies of these apostate teachers. But that's not our only enemy. Our, Our enemy also is Satan himself, who in his schemes desires to tear down the church. And we have confidence of this. We will survive both. I'm getting there. I don't want to steal the thunder, but I'm getting there. They will fail. Both these apostate teachers and Satan himself will fail in their desire. Finally, the purpose beyond, behind pastor teachers, unity of the faith, knowledge, intimate knowledge of the Son of God, the me, you know, maturity of the believer, the sound doctrine that must be there. Christ gave pastor teachers to the local church so that the church would live and walk in love. What is the result of a church that believes right doctrine? They are the most loving and the most servant-minded of all people. They're not proud. They're not, they're not caught up with themselves, but they love and they serve. Why? Because, as the passage says, they speak the truth in love. They truth it in love. So that we are to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. So, they speak the truth in love, walking about in service, Because they are mature. They have the foundation of the faith and they know who Christ is. This is the purpose of the pastor teacher. How is the ultimate purpose accomplished in the church? Well, the body of Christ is empowered by Christ himself. I said earlier, the schemes of the devil and the craftiness of mankind will not succeed in tearing down the church. How can we be so confident? Because we receive the power for growth, the energy for growth, from Christ Himself. Look what it says in verse 16. From whom, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the head of the body is Christ, and He gives the body what it needs so that it might grow. So how can I be confident that the schemes of Satan and the lying and deceitful apostate teachers that are among us won't in the end be victorious in leading us from Christ? Because Christ is alive. The word for head here has several possible meanings, but in this text, it means he is not only the leader of the church, but He is the source of life for the church. He gives the life that He possesses in Himself to His people so that they will never die. This is what He said in John 11 when He resurrected His friend Nicodemus. If I raise you from the dead, you will never die, but you will have eternal life. That's the summation of John 11. The great resurrection 
victory of Jesus Christ assures that we will not fail. The church will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevent the church from growing, from becoming what God intends the church to be. The body of Christ grows as all the members use their God-given gifts to build up the body in love for the glory of God. So, how does the church how does the church accomplish its purpose? Christ gives it the power and the body does what it's designed to do. Sovereignly, God grows His church and responsibly, you act as He has called you to and the church grows. Sovereignty and responsibility. Are you surprised to hear those two together here at Grace Fellowship? That's a theme around this place, isn't it? Because it's biblical. How will we grow? Because Christ will make us grow. How will we grow? Because each of us will do what we are designed to do. We will be active in growing. It's both and, not either or. The sin of the hyper-Calvinist among us is that they think God's design is fatalism. So whether they pray or whether they work or whether they preach or whether they call people to repentance or whether they edify and build one another up, God's going to do what He's going to do. That is pagan to its very core. That is fatalistic. It is flawed. It is not biblical. Sovereignty, by the Bible's definition, is that God being all-knowing, possessing all knowledge, things that have happened, will happen, and could possibly happen in, 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 in all possible worlds, created a world in which caused the world by His power to come into existence, in which His people pray and work that His kingdom might come. That's biblical sovereignty. Both sovereignty and responsibility. So you can't sit idly by and say, well, whatever God wants for me or for His church, He'll do it. No, He won't. A disobedient church, a lazy church, an unfaithful pastor, teacher, will lead to a church that dies and is cut off. But a body of believers grounded in the unity of the faith with sound doctrine, who know Christ face to face intimately as a man knows his wife, and are growing in maturity, will never die. Not in this world or the next but will only grow into the stature and the fullness of Him who is her head, Jesus Christ. Listen, I know I've been straightforward and direct. I know I've said maybe more than you wanted, been more blunt than maybe you, be, maybe you would be comfortable with in this series of sermons. There's so much more that could be said. But my, my design and my hope has been that we as a church would see Christ and treasure Him as our source of life. 
that we would know our role to the point that we fulfill it by His grace. It's as simple as this. If I don't know my job description and you don't know your job description, then what ends up happening is I don't think you're doing your job and you don't think I'm doing mine. You get mad and angry and I get bitter. And you don't want that. And the five pastors of this church don't want that. What we desire, what we pray for, what we labor towards is that Grace Fellowship would be, by the grace of God, a mature, well-fit and equipped body of ministers. Every member is a ministry. Has a ministry. What I've come to realize, Dave and I talk about this often, is that what so often is happening in the church and what people are looking for in the church is a lot of face-to-face -face fellowship. Time looking at each other. I'm not saying that's not important. But what the Bible shows as true fellowship is linked in arms. They're not facing one another. They're facing the goal, Christ. And they're laboring to be like Him. That, you may think Dave and I see a lot of each other. But we probably see, I see Dave less than I see some of you. But there is no question in my mind that Dave and I share the same heartbeat. So much so that I can go weeks without seeing him or talking to him. And I trust that he is laboring for the harvest. And he, he likewise. So much so that when we do get together, it's usually over a cup of coffee and we're just rehashing what God's doing all around us. And we feel tight and close to one another. That's what will happen, I believe, in time and is happening all over this congregation. And if you don't feel that happening, you don't sense that happening, you're not having that happen. The solution is not to change the job descriptions, but to ingest and believe the job descriptions that God has given us and us join together in the work of the ministry. That's what we want. That's what you want. I know that about you. And that's what God will supply by His grace. Let's pray.